0: You're listening to Arsenal Pass, a flesh and blood podcast for players by players and all about strategy,
1: leveling up, and the latest news in the world of Wraith. Welcome to
0: Arsenal Pass.
1: So you went out to the wilderness. Did you, Brennan, did you find Bigfoot?
0: Uh, No, I did not. Um, It was... Pretty crazy trip, though. We actually planned for two nights, three days, and we ended up just doing it in two days. It's a 26-mile loop, a few thousand feet of elevation. Um, and, yeah, the main reason for that was that you need a there's, – there's a ridiculous permit system in Oregon. It's, it's terrible. Um, <laughs> but we kind of knew we didn't have one of the permits we needed, and we ran to Ranger on the way up to the very top. And he's like, yeah, just don't stay here another night. So we ended up just finishing the whole entire thing, which was cool. Um, great trip. I learned a lot of lessons and, uh, yeah, I'm ready for the next one. I think we're doing k K two next. I don't know if you've heard of that mountain.
1: (laughs) It's heard. It's a bit of a walk that one. You should probably, probably sit your sights a little bit higher. Yeah. (laughs) But while you start training for, uh, K two before that, we're going to talk a little bit this week about the art of defense, so not the art of the hike, Brendan, or the art of the walk, or the art of the climb, it's the art of defense. Uh, we had a great question a while ago about when to defend and when not to defend in flesh and blood, and uh, it's a pretty integral part of the game, right? might be slipping away a little bit in some some aspects, but today we are going to go over, uh, I guess, some, some key concepts and some things that can give you some edges, give you some percentages, uh, things to remember to gain just a few little points here and there that can add up to some pretty big wins um over the course of the game so looking forward to that we also have a great Commander cookout question that we're going to get to as well Brendan. but before then i guess how was you working flesh and blood if you did play any flesh
0: and blood this week uh almost non-existent i played before i went out but i haven't we only played a little bit post ban and then i went on my trip so um yeah took a took a took a bit of a break from flesh and blood but that's because i knew that there would be, be a grind time when i came back so looking now at the these kind of future two weeks we have before we head out to Lille to sort of lock in on a deck ideally lock in on a deck this week and then work on game plans maybe lock in on two decks right because there is a bit of mended dependency on what deck we'll pick but lock in on game plans figure out sideboards and then really look at the data from other tournaments prior to the pro tour to you know maybe sway us this way or that way because you know singapore beforehand you know some of the battle hardens there's a lot um there's a lot of information you can utilize to pick your deck for pro tour number two
1: Mm. reading between the lines brennan it really feels like you know the ban came last week and you were hit so hard and such a such an emotional reaction for you that you just had to walk away and go into the forest for five days is that is that just coincidence or intentional i just i I just couldn't
0: be around the internet i couldn't think about those freaking stubby hammers i had to go just sit in the wilderness and ponder. Um, and now that I've come back, I did post on Twitter. Um, I had a, a bit of a clairvoyance, a moment per se, and I've um, I've locked on Saber Bolton. Everybody, that is my deck for Pro 2 number two.
1: Mm-hmm. And along with your Azalea deck that you you always love to talk about. Mm-hmm. Well, what, I uh, I just spent the week testing, trying to get in some sessions where I could, ramping up a little bit. Uh, I fly out earlier than you do, Brendan. So I'm off to Singapore in i mean when the pod drops in four days so haven't got long now uh but then of course once we get to lille on the tuesday before the pro tour do have two or three days with brendan uh and and sasha to just work through some things and and work out you like you say sidewall plans game plans uh what we want to play for the pt hoping to get in another last few drafts this week at this weekend um time permitting and yeah, that's kind of been the week in Flesh and Blood. Haven't uh, did I play an event? I feel like I played a. Oh, I went to a, a, a like a one k event here in Sydney on Sunday, which was awesome. Really well run by a store called Grimdark Gaming. They're uh, first my first time down there. They're about sort of like an hour hour 20 minutes from me so a bit of a drive but i wanted to get in some some cc and uh, i've heard so much about the store so i really wanted to get down and play there had an awesome time awesome experience uh had a, a direct rematch of my nationals final and i lost this time brennan i got taken out by an ultim and uh by eg- exactly the same player that i played in the finals at australian nationals getting yeah. his revenge taking me down so
0: did he attack you this time
1: <laughs> he definitely did attack <laughs> okay. me uh so no we had, we had a good game good day all around uh it was quite late by the time i got home so it was a big big day for a sunday but um managed to get that in last sort of i guess event before before calling in the and the pt but no all good stuff brendan news, news. uh qu- quite weak this week i mean not not a lot of things happening the lull before the storm or the calm before the storm i guess before we head into battle hard in portland this week calling singapore the following weekend and then of course the big one uh pro tour and the calling in Lille. it's all about to go down uh, we've, of course, had the, the ban-restricted announcement. We now have three weeks of, of events around the world. And then we head into national season, which is crazy. So we get a, a ban-restricted announcement on the 30th, right? So I just want to remind everyone of that. We have a scheduled ban-restricted announcement on the 30th, August, following the conclusion of uh, the Lille weekend. And then we head into national season. So uh, it's going to be a pretty pretty full-on time. Uh, but otherwise, nothing really to report on this week. Did just want to, of course, give a big uh, call-out to all of our patrons Uh, if you're not familiar with our Patreon, we do deck guides up there that go along with all our deck techs on YouTube. We do an additional monthly podcast uh, where we dive into things that we, you know, we might not feel fits the main channel uh, and sort of small level-up topics and things like that, Um, as well as just any extra content that we throw up over the time, uh, whether it be sort of like gameplay reviews or uh, draft sheets, things like that, so.
0: Well, I'll tell you, Hayden, while I was uh, (sighs) was in Oregon.
1: (laughs) Oh, you already know. He's
0: already... He's already sniffing it out of me. Um Yeah, we climbed up to the top of this mountain. We stopped the first night at Green Lakes. We got there at around eight PM and all, like it's just such a wild concept to me that in the wilderness there's like these like pre established campsites, but they're not really campsites. But then they would put the closed sign on them, which was the most ridiculous. So I was getting wrecked by mosquitoes, sun was setting, freezing cold, and we gotta find a spot. But and once we find it, we also got to make some food, which means we got to whip up our own little command and cook out there in there. I had my dehydrated um, chicken and rice, which was delicious. And then I proceeded to lay in my sleeping bag and freeze my butt off um, until about 3 a.m., which in which I fell asleep. And then woke we'll back up at 5 a.m. But it was good. It was a good barbecue on the Bunsen burner that night. So why don't you take us into uh, this week's barbecue, which is a command and cookout question from TJB.
1: Yep, you can hear all the world's smallest of islands playing for you, Brendan. Um, I was loving I mean, it, it. What like do you a, mean? That's <laughs> pretty good. Yeah, yeah. I, I tell you what, the, the times I've done, uh, I, I, to, I grew up literally right underneath the mountain. Uh, and all my time spent on the mountain was always good cold, warm, wet, windy. Uh, you know, you just get through it. And then you always know that you're heading home a couple of days later. So you just,
0: you just sort it out then. That's where that <laughs> myth comes from that you used to be a goblin in your childhood, right?
1: what what <laughs> goblin uh well anyway uh tjb asks a discord question from us for Commander cookout uh if you do want to get your command cookout questions and you can get them in via email askandpassfab at gmail.com drop them in the youtube comments below get on our discord our community discord through patreon where this question has come from uh, or just any other way you want drop them to us at, at LIL if you really want to has there ever been an in-depth discussion of how to decide to go first or second some local competitive players are very split on whether Viscera and Fire want to go first in that matchup, uh, as an example, both on aggro plan. For example, pros for going first as, as Fire is that there's a 25% chance to get a Phoenix Flame or Flame Call Awakening, or may have a 16 or 17 damage turn that leaks through some damage. Going second is good for obvious reasons of getting the first real stakes turn. So, you know, TJB is talking about the, the, I guess the tempo aspect of having the first attack of the game uh, if all things are blocked down turn zero. Pro viscerite going first is that he may be able to get in some arcane damage uh, though with the little builds unlikely to be much is there much is there consensus how do you ultimately decide is there a life total difference that feels worth it like if you know you can leak four damage and Arsenal turn zero or is that better than going second so Brendan I want to pick this question because I think this is a very big question first of all uh but one that has come up multiple times and uh you know I thought we could just tackle and just talk about because there is uh I like to say that there is a bit of a science to going first or second for sure but there's also a bit of an art to going first or second in terms of it's not always I think black and white in terms of there's a lot of variables and a lot of things that change and sometimes uh, it can be really close and it can really be about what you think your opponent wants to do and the feel of the game so I wanted to talk through a few different I guess um, considerations things to you think about or work out if you're choosing whether you go first or second and I think, Brendan, you're going to love this one. The first one is really it's all about preparation, right? Like, you want to know before you hit into a match if you want to go first or second,
0: yeah? Uh, yeah, of course. <laughs> of course, of course. I mean, it, it's uh, it's very predictable, right, if you look at your matchup spread. I mean, most of the examples mentioned by uh, T here were based off constructed. I think in, in limited, it's actually a bit more straightforward and constructed, but constructed, obviously, mm-hmm. um, you know, you can go based off your game plans, but... Yeah, so I I think for going first or going second, I find myself in, in limited usually going second and finding the choice to be a bit easier. Um, I will change that choice based off of my opponent is on a hero that, you know, it really behooves them to go first, whether it's via dominates, um, any kind of uninteractable damage, something like that. But in Construct, it gets a bit more complicated because I think the power level of hands can change quite drastically from something like a four-card hand to a five-card hand. You could also be playing heroes that are looking for very specific cards, things like Briar looking for Chinama Heroic, or even Old Briar looking for Plunder Run. You mentioned Viserai being able to leak arcane damage. Well, Viserai also can build up rune chance, maybe less so less so than he used to but still it is um some incremental advantage we used to do the same thing in chain right you would play chain um you choose to go first and a lot of times you would shackle pass now that is dependent on the five card hand but it is it is also just the incremental advantage of having one shackle up and you know if you're in a chain mirror and you're a shackle ahead of your opponent it can be quite an advantage so constructed it's a little bit more complicated but at the same time you can you know, it's part of developing game plans. It's part of developing cyborg plans and understanding your matchups. You sort of predetermine whether you plan to go first or second. Mm. Yeah, I think
1: to to answer, I guess the question in its entirety, kind of the crux of the question, there is no consensus, and and there shouldn't be because, like Brendan just said, it it really depends. So I think a big part of it, like we said, is preparation, and it is. It's, so you take constructed class constructed as an example, it's part of your game plans, even to the point that you're probably you know, boarding differently, you know, setting your deck up in a different way based on going first or second. That could be equipment, uh, that could be cards in in the deck and this is something that I, you know, personally I'm always thinking about when it comes to the cyborg plan. Okay, if I'm going first, this is the approach I want from going second and there's a, there's a few other considerations which I definitely want to get to but first I want to talk about like I guess some uh, some examples of this because Brendan you alluded to some, T talked about some but I want to just use a few different clear examples. I want to start with limited. So I think you can use the current limited format to look at this. And say, is it better to go first or second um, in any given matchup? And what you, what you need to think about is, let's take, uh, let's take fi, uh, a Fire Mirror, for example, right? In a Fire Mirror, uh, what do you gain from going first? Okay, I go first, maybe I can leak damage because my opponent has a lot of two blocks, maybe they have a Phoenix Flame in the hand, etc. Uh, and I, I can arsenal a card. Now you've got to work out what's the, what's the value of that card in your arsenal is it is it two is it three is it four it's really going to depend right on, on how strong your hand is uh if you draw a, a you know a pretty average to weak hand can you actually leak damage and can you arsenal a good card that's kind of your some of your considerations right on the flip side say i choose to go second well you know uh my opponent tries to leak damage i block out with my whole hand maybe i leak one or two damage and then i get to come in with the first uh you know attack that takes tempo on turn one with both players having a full card hand so those are kind of like some of the, the base considerations, right? And I think a lot of the consensus is you 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 know you obviously want to go second in this in this current format of Limited. If you port that over to class constructed, you know, <laughs> Brendan, you just said it. There's that might be the considerations you're looking at in Limited. There's so, so many more that come into it uh going second. And I think there's a few kind of uh I guess like rules of thumb you can come back to and things you can and think about, I guess concepts you can think about. But you know, use an example, you talk about chain, right? Well, in most matchups, how what's the value of the, getting a soul shackle and getting a card in arsenal and maybe a room chant on the board uh, versus having, I guess, the tempo in chain? That soul shackle was like so so important because it represented a, a card and and that kept going. You know, you get to your third soul shackle, you know, half a turn earlier, etc. So going first was is generally really really strong, right? Uh, but maybe in a, a more traditional aggro matchup where the, the value of that arsenal card is not that high, but the, the tempo and the damage for going second is higher, then maybe you want to go second. So uh, Warrior Mirrors, for instance, could be, could be an example of that. So there's a lot of different uh, things to think about.
0: Yeah.
1: How do you... Um, I actually wanted to say one thing on that as well. Was like, it's what's really important is to think about what your opponent wants to do. So you can think about all things you want to do with your deck, like this is what my deck can do, blah, 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 but that's only half the equation. Your opponent's on the other side. Do they want to go first or do they want to go second? So what are they trying to do? Limited, I think, again, this is a lot easier. Like you said, you know, you just talked about the Fire Mirror. Well, you've just done both sides of the equation. Switch it to Dromai on the other side. Do their side of the equation. What do they want to do with their first turn going second or first? And, and you can work backwards that way. And you can do the same constructor, Constructed. It's just a little bit more complicated because you probably need to know a little bit more about what your opponent's trying to do and what's in their deck, yeah?
0: Mm-hmm. I find that um, going second is... Somewhat equivalent to card advantage to an extent, um, because if you just assume that like the first turn zero of the game is not, is sometimes not really a turn, right? Like, uh, the damage is blocked out, there's le- let's assume there's no leak damage, right? Um, I can be up like three cards on my opponent. I draw the cards back up. I blocked with three cards, but these cards come back to my hand. And now those cards are actually presenting real threats to my opponent when it comes back to my turn, which is going second. Um, I also think that it can get really interesting. And this is, I think me and Michael Hamilton had a really long discussion about this back in Vegas, which is, you know, if you look at going second as card advantage, it's, it seems like it's going to be correct most of the time, right? But, and outside of the other obvious reasons of why you might want to go first, it's like your opponent has to dominate, maybe your opponent's a wizard or something like that. Um, there's a question of this. Like, let's say on the on turn zero... It's very likely that I'll hit you for five damage past the threshold of your entire hand, right? Leak five damage, whether that's hitting two times for four, and then you know there's like some arcane damage that comes in uh, for three at the end, and you can't block it. Uh, and you attack me for fifteen, but then I also attack you for fifteen, right? I am presenting lethal on the second on the on the second turn of the game, so it's like you're already having to block with cards out of your hand based off. Uh, on my sort of second turn, right? And I'm presenting lethal. So like the first player to present lethal is me. And the first player to, pr- to be ripping cards out of the opponent's hand is me. And this is in like an aggro-viaggro. It's like, would it be correct to go first in that scenario, right? Because it's like the damage threshold that can be presented on each turn, whether it's it's a limited set or two specific constructed decks might behoove you to actually choose to go first because it's so high. The most extreme case of this is actually Bl- Viscerae in Blitz back when it was busted, where you would choose to go first. Because you could literally kill your opponent on the first turn of the game.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, <laughs> I, I, what you can do. So you talked about like you know breakpoints and stuff. You can use some examples of this. You know, uh, Ryan Iron Blitz is another example, right? Uh, going first is often quite optimal because you can leak damage. You have ways to you know disrupt the opponent, intimidate their hand, and and leak damage. Uh, plus, also if you can do that, then on your your second turn, you can probably take the full swing depending on the matchup. Just take you know if they can't if you're playing a deck they can't do you 20 damage, you get to come back with a five card hand uh, and maybe you've leaked a little bit of damage. You can probably present lethal, like you say, take cards in hand or just kill them. So there is definitely like that kind of aspect to it and it translates over to constructed in the same way it translates over to limited it's just a little bit less clear i think than maybe a format like blitz um but then there is also you know the the kind of you can just you can literally just like apply some some sort of simple equation to it and this is why i think the default often will be to 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 go second because let's say we start on our turn and uh we we can't like damage but we can arsenal a card the value of that arsenal card is say maybe four or five damage maybe it's a you know it's a a lightning surge from arsenal or something so it's going to be with four damage or maybe it's worth something that's uh, slightly more that works with other cards and can be with five damage and we can set up a, a say something on the board uh you know maybe it's a, a quicken token max or it's a i don't know an embodiment of lightning let's go with that let's go with a bri- briar example you can embody the lightning and you get a lightning surge in your arsenal now if the average hand is worth 12 damage right we've got we've got up to 16 plus maybe a little bit more if our opponent comes in and comes in with, you know, an average an average hand comes in for, for 12. Where are we at on that kind of just equation of trading damage? H- have, we, have we made up enough? Because like you said before, you know, you could take three cards from someone, Brendan, if you come with the, you know, an attack if, if blocking is the correct option. So where are you at on the equation? Like is your arsenal slot plus your embodiment of lightning on the board enough to make up for the fact that your opponent gets to have the first attack of the game and then draw back up afterwards? And now you're either down on cards or you're down on damage. So if you want to keep that full five card hand plus your embodiment of lightning, are you taking 12 damage? Are you now at 28? At, at and now you're coming in with your five cut hand versus your opponent's four cut hand. And that's where the game really starts. So I think if you want to understand, should I be going first, for instance, I think the, the question my, I always want to ask is, do I want to go first? Not do I want to go second? It's actually just, do I want to go first? Can I make reasons for this? Then those are the things I'm looking at. I'm trying to understand what that arsenal's worth, what the things on board are worth, what anything that I can potentially do on turn one is worth. Um, I think that's kind of the best place to start.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And then kind of calling back to what I was talking about, I feel like in Constructed, it's a lot of times why you do choose to go first is because – just sort of the ridiculous uh, exponent, almost exponential increase of your potential damage based off the 5 card hand and then also how fast you can kill your opponent um, on the turk cycle so it's like they can crack back you at a 4 card hand doesn't matter if you play 2 5 card hands into them they're dead anyway This you see this a lot not a lot but you see this potentially in some of the ring blade decks right so when they are able to put the channel mount heroic in arsenal or maybe land the channel mount heroic early get the embodiment of lightning as well just really set up for an explosive turn and then after that explosive turn on their ter- turn 2 turn 3 they're already ripping cards so um yeah it's 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 a really interesting concept i think that fundamentally it's usually correct to go second but this you know combinations of cards and constructed decks can't are liable to sort of break that rule and also evasion as well right getting damage in because your opponent cannot block whether it's uh dominate or it's intimidate or it's arcane damage mm-hmm.
1: what do you think is safer when you win the roll going first or second second just in general just yeah second of all the rolls you've won in flesh and blood have you chosen to go first or second more?
0: So, I chose to go second more. Uh, sorry, I chose to go first more because um, I think that I didn't understand that concept quite as mm-hmm. well, but also I played a lot more constructed, right? And I felt in constructed a lot of the decks that we've been playing recently have been the hyper aggressive uh, uh, decks, right? So, the Chains and the Briars. And I feel like those decks do want to go first. And we're talking about Chain, we had Soul Shackles a Briar, who had Plunder Run, um, and Wizard. That was, you know, that was a combo deck we wanted to set up, and we could also have damage that had evasion. So, back when we played Ninja Turtle, I chose to go second. But if we look back to a de- like a format like Welcome to Wraith, I would choose to go second unless I was playing against Bravo.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's just an interesting question because I think, he, he, you know, like us learning a lot about this kind of concept of first versus second, like, uh, I'm probably in the same boat. And I, I think a lot of people are because, especially in Classic Construct, like you said, going first feels safer. You know, it feels like, well, there's not really too much that can go wrong. Whereas if I go second, maybe they leak damage somehow that I don't know about or they set up something that I don't know about and then they have this crazy five card hand on mm. their on on you know on turn two. There's all these things that come into it. But realistically, that's all kind of irrelevant, especially if you've done the preparation, which we just talked about at the start. So yeah, I mean, I agree. I think I've chosen to go first a lot more and, and incorrectly in a lot of situations as well. And it's something mm. that's been kind of a big learning for me is that, um, you know I'm not saying that second is always going to be correct or it should be necessarily the default but I think people choose to go first more than they should because it's just a it's just an, a gap in understanding I think so this kind of idea of being prepared I think it should come into people's testing to be honest you know so when you're talking about limited or constructed I think first first second should be part of your testing you, you can you can do that you can add it into your testing it's not that hard you can start from a theory standpoint of what do we think is better or what do we think could happen if x of the matchup goes first and goes second and then just play a few games and then think about it with the start and draw did that play out the way you thought it did, did not play out the way you thought it did there's something unexpected happen that changes your mind about going first versus second and that's that's testing first versus second in a matchup so yeah the only last thing I want to talk about is you know like this kind of idea of sideboarding and equipment setup uh, that can change format blitz limited class constructed the way you set up being first or second um it should be relevant and it's definitely something that I think people uh, should think about but my challenge would be, challenge this idea that you just default go first when you don't know, and maybe it's default you go second when you don't know. Is that is that the better place to be? Yeah, I think so. it is
0: the better place to be, to be honest. On, like, a fundamental basis. Um, it's just, like, in Constructed, I think that the sort of power of flesh and blood... It's weird to say the word power, but at least the damage numbers uh, have been going up, right? Like, we see explosive turns are much more common, and the amount of damage you can hit by on a single turn uh, has does seem to... Ha- have been increasing, right? Like it does kind of fluctuate a bit. But like if you look back at like something like Welcome to Wraith or Arcane Res or even Crucible of War, um, like the amount of damage you were going to get hit by on like a five card hand was not your entire life total sometimes. So not it wasn't hitting those 30 thresholds. So like nowadays, you know, Fives obviously kind of toned down a bit, but even with the Rune Blades, you can see some just ridiculous stuff come your way.
1: Yeah, I mean like there's some decks in the past that just couldn't use their four card hand. You know yeah. what I mean? And so like putting them going second actually was fine because you could get say four damage value in your arsenal maybe even five With a setup card uh you get something on the table maybe it's a couple of room chance or whatever and then on their turn they're like "Ah, uh, cool i come in for seven with this attack and you're like cool so you know like this is i'm, I'm trading you know pretty equitable damage here except that I, I now have this five card hand which can be exponentially explosive so and it's the same in limited i think you look back at this limited format has really good ways to utilize your full hand uh, previous of formats, you know, welcome to Wraith, there's let's go again. Uh, even something like Monarch, right? Uh, with a deck like Olivia, you're often just like, I want to block with two cards, attack with two cards. Mm-hmm. And if you put up the opponent going second, it makes it really difficult for them to do that. So, you know, there is there is nuances, I think. And it's going to be format dependent, it's going to be deck dependent. And um, again, you can just kind of be prepared for this and be across it. So great question there from uh, TJB. If you do want to get any questions in, like I say, to the Gwana Cookout, you can do it any which way you want. Email, uh, again, it's arsenalpathsfab at gmail.com. Um you can drop it in the YouTube comments below or DM us. Anyway, Brendan, oh. it's time to talk a bit more about sort of fundamentals and concepts in flesh and blood and move on to the main topic of the show.
0: Yeah, defending in flesh and blood, probably one of the most underrated concepts because it's it's a bit less sexy than attacking, although some people really do like defending. Some people think it's the sexiest thing you can do in the game. Um but I think this is the one of the biggest level ups you can get as a new player, right? Because I remember when Flush and Blood first came out, so like back in 2019, 2020, a lot of newer players that came from other games, would, they would always ask me like a, kind of like a single fundamental question, which is like, why would I ever block? Um, and I think that's a good way to actually open this main topic, Hayden. And I'll pose that question to you, which is why would you ever block in Flush and Blood? Why not just attack?
1: I mean, there's so many reasons. I mean, the, the first, the, first the, the obvious reason is to get the most value out of my hand. That's the, the most obvious reason for why you should defend is to get the most value possible out of your hand. So, like we said before, uh, a hand might not be able to use all four cards offensively, like we just talked about with the Commander Cookout question. They might only be able to use two efficiently. So, you know, if I have an attack for seven and I have two cards that block for six, well, I can get you know thirteen damage out of that net. Like that. That's the the very base reason for why you should defend in this game. Mm-hmm. It's it's an interesting. It's like. There's been this kind of like, uh, I, I wrote some notes to this before and I was thinking about it. Like there's been this kind of, uh, I, I think, ebb and flow in Fish and Blood where we've moved more and more actually now towards this idea of like the offensive turns are the strength of the game. Mm-hmm. You know, like people are so, whenever we talk about the game, whenever we talk about class constructed decks, even when we talk about limited decks, a lot of the focus that that us, anyone, any players out there, a lot of the focus comes on. What does the offensive look like? What five-cut hands have become the like you know the buzzword of <laughs> the buzz term of whole flesh and blood? You know what do these five-cut hands look like? How much damage can you push? But really, and I, I guess it's what something that gets forgotten is that defense is still part of the game. And of course we do. And I'm, I'm not just talking about ultra defensive decks, right? I'm not just talking about like you said before, you know, the love of the defense. I'm not talking about altum. I'm not talking about fatigue. I'm talking about just generally. First of all, like I just said, getting the most out of your hand, but just defending for efficiency and defending to gain advantage in games. Because there's so many ways, and I think defending is getting harder, to be honest. I think that's a big part of it as well. And I think it's something that, for some reason, is being missed and we should talk more about. Because combat chains are going wider. You look at things like like Fi, Briar... Um, damage is getting more mixed you know a lot more arcane and split damage arcane damage and physical damage with rune blades of course uh and you know even to the point where we see things like um you know like dromai there's you know or prism there's different damage types coming at you with permanence on the board in the form of dromai so i think the defensive portion of the game is becoming harder but we seem to only focus on the offensive game at the
0: moment it's a it's a funny it's a funny thing that's happened uh I don't know if it's quite a bell curve, but definitely when the game started, nobody really blocked. Like, there's, a, there's very few blocking. And then the blocking came in. People realized, like, oh, and this is back when we had just a few sets. But it was quite easy to evaluate the value of your hand uh, on offense versus defense. But now it's gotten a bit different because of the way the cards are sort of dependent on each other and um, just how, how exponential the power can be, right? Um, things like plunder run, right? Uh, And multiple hit triggers, getting multiple embodiments. back in those days. Nevertheless, uh, I think we went through a phase of like a lot of blocking, right? Fatigue became a thing. There were a lot of control decks. And then we sort of come back into this phase where blocking is actually starting to be seen to an extent. It's not quite there, but it's becoming... I've heard it mentioned as sort of that in the same mythical realm as... The second cycle of the deck. Like, some people don't think that blocking exists. They said, Why would you ever block? Because, like, now you see decks like Fi, especially Combo Fi. You see the Rune Blades. sometimes. Uh, they've been powering down a bit. But back in the day, it's like, Well, I just always do more damage with my hand. It always does more damage. And there's been, like, this sort of, you know, no block to block to no block again but now with the bands and some of um some heroes rotating out i think we're coming back close to a portion where you do want to be sort of taking a closer look at your hand and figuring out if you do want to defend or attack
1: yeah it's not just classic construct as well though it's, it's limited yeah like mm-hmm. i think that's something something i noticed at my limited road to nationals is that um people were just like misblocking and losing points of of health basically you know like it got to the point where the end of the chain where they're like oh, i'm going to defend with this card at some point but i want to hold it for an on-hit effect and all of a sudden you know the phoenix flame is coming in and then they're like um i guess i block with this card or i don't block with them they have a dead card in the hand you know like those sorts of things are starting to creep back into the game which i, I think is is kind of crazy right because that's that's just you just lost two points of damage there or three points of of damage potentially um which is kind of nuts right but it, it is something i'm seeing a bit more of again so and it's not, um, like I said before, it's not easy. Like the defending of this game is becoming harder because let's say, for example, you know, you think that, okay, defending is like net negative, right? Like I don't want to defend because my hand always deals more damage. I have like all these two blocks on my deck. My um, things say three and four and, and plus on them, right? But then you've got on-hit effects coming back into the game you know, more or in some way, shape, or form, whether it be you know something like Maurene um, skies out of, of viscerai whether it be you know like crush effects, whether it be this and that. And and taller effects are h- easier to see, right? Because say a crippling crush comes in at you or a spinal crush, that's the attack. I know what's happening. Um Let's stay away from pummel for now. But you can see that right in front of you, right? Whereas if your opponent has five cards in hand, they lead with their first card, and you know it's a it's a zero for three, it's a Cinderclaw. What does the rest of the hand look like? That's really hard to know. So it's really hard to know how you should defend. But your your defensive hand so your hand sorry if you your kind of just default is like i want to attack with all these four cards and then your opponent comes in with they've got mass momentum and they're playing fire if you don't defend say that second or third attack right what's the, the value of that card in your hand now because you've now just given them the card it could have been worth two on defense or four on offense but actually maybe it could have been worth five on defense because they draw another red bramble with claw or rising resentment or whatever it is so There is a there's a lot to think about when it comes to to defense, I think, outside of just the printed numbers on my card do this and the printed numbers on my opponent's cards do this. So um, I think the one big takeaway, you just asked why to me before Brendan, right? But when I think about why you should focus on defending or defense a lot more and, and these sort of like, I guess, try and honestly try and get more edge with your defensive sort of side of the game. Is that you're going to remember the small mistakes you make, the small mistakes you make on offense, right? Like, oh, I missequenced this, or I didn't quite do this the right way, or I <laughs> my Snapdragon scale is right, Brendan. Um, but are you going to remember the times where you leaked one or two damage from misblocking? Oh, I didn't block the three attack. Now my opponent's coming with a two attack, but I I committed to blocking this card in my hand because it does nothing. I've missed a point of damage that way, or you know, small things like that. Those are things you're not really going to remember, to be honest. I don't think people focus on as much, but it all adds up. Like, one to two damage across four or five turns in a game is 10 damage you know like it's 5 to 10 damage that's a lot of life total and these games could end at one or two and you might not take a look back you might take a look back at a specific turn be like oh i leaked a you know i I didn't save a point of damage here or two points of damage here uh but you know i lost by like five or six life and but but actually if you looked at multiple turns in a row could there have been a lot of damage that got missed over that game just by some inefficiencies in defense and and you might not always see them straight up i think uh something that i've kind of learned
0: I think you're absolutely right. And this is uh I see this play out a lot with Quell as well, like misusing Quell in the current format, the coin limited format. Um I think uh Michael uh sorry, Michael Fang was on the podcast recently and I, I, I definitely am congruent with what he said where it's like uh getting up one damage uh one point of health or one point of damage on your opponent via quell or quelling in a better situation than your opponent wins so many games. I think that yeah. Uprising is seen is such an aggressive format and such a such an attacking format. Like that it feels like that's where the games are won um at the surface level. But I think the more you dig into it, the more you see that they're often won actually on the defensive level. And just it's just a hyper efficient format. And if you're able to efficiently use a piece of armor uh with quell on it when your opponent and your opponent does not get that, I find you can win the game. Um you'll win a lot of games that way.
1: Yeah, and I, I think it's actually it translates into class constructed like the the I guess the skill like the the either ends of the sort of like skill gap I guess are closing significantly, and and the game's getting tighter. There's more explosive decks out there. You know that one or two points of damage can matter a lot more. And I think it's um it, it translates across all the formats. So. I think we've you know, especially me, have waxed lyrical enough about kind of the the reasons why we should focus on the sort of defensive elements of the game. But why don't we talk about, I guess, some of these considerations on a defensive turn? Like how how do you approach this? What are the things you should like focus on and think about on the defensive side of the game to notice these things, to improve on them, to to get better on them? So, um I wanna start with the first one because, you know, it's it's pretty simple, but I think it does get forgotten often because sometimes the default is, Well, I'm just gonna take my whole hand. But mm-hmm. Brendan, it's um it's just doing the math it's just what is the net damage that's available on the table here taking all things into consideration so i use that mask momentum example before but if i attack with all my cards if i defend with all my cards and then some iteration in between what is the most damage that i can uh can effectively add up to both on defense and offense Mm -hmm. with those four cards
0: yeah absolutely i think that's super important um it's kind of on that same vein not quite but like uh, just because so, you gave a constructed event ball i just want to give a limited example which we already kind of talked about but if you're playing something like Fi, right and you have eight blues in your deck or maybe nine blues which is close to optimal um there's a turn where you draw two blues right and these are normal blues in the uprising format and they block for two you utilize that turn to pitch one of your blues for quell and you turn that blue into a block three it seems small, but it is massive, right? Because the likelihood that there will be three attacks in that combat chain where you're uh, you're facing an opposing um, uh, and they have a four card hand or a five card hand, extremely likely, right? So you now have an like the option to cash in a two block blue for a three block total, and it was going to be redundant in your hand anyway. Um, I think that those are kind of like those are some of the playlines where you doing the math. It's like you're getting above rate, and like that's what you want to be doing.
1: Yeah. There's something I want to come back to on that, but I don't want to jump the gun because I don't want to, uh, I don't want to muddle and confuse. I guess this kind of what I think is important in this defensive turn and, and something that's a, a concept that I do want to talk about, but it relates basically to the con to the concept you just talked about, um, which is you know when you might want to use a card defensively. But I want to come back to that, Brendan. I want to talk about the use of equipment because you literally just started talking about it with Quell. There, the, this is how you can gain a lot of edge. So the classic example, right? I know you love swan brinners. Yep, Arcanine Skullcap. What do you say about Arcanine Skullcap, Brin? tell us your wisdom on Arcanine Skullcap.
0: Well, it's let's just let's 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 back it up a bit. Let's talk about how equipment gets used incorrectly. And it's going to sound really funny, and you're gonna be like, I would never do that. But I've seen so many high level professional players in calling finals in national finals do this silly thing. This is that one silly tip that you need to stop doing to win a world championship don't block with your armor for no reason. It makes no freaking sense. Not all damage is created equal, and most decks have on-hit triggers. And if you're if you're cognizant that your opponent does have on-hit triggers, like you know they have Snatch, if you're blocking raw damage with your armor that is going to kill you or put you at a critical threshold when you will die and you won't be able to interact, that is incorrect. Um, and it's often even incorrect with Arcanized Skull Cap. So, yeah, so for Arcanized Skull Cap, it is important, if you can, to get the value of 3 block out of it. But I don't think at... The cost of potentially losing the ability to block with it when a relevant on-hit trigger comes. So, like, let's say Arcanite Skullcap is your only block available. You know your opponent has Snatches in their deck, but you're still like, oh, I just want to cheek out this one block, and I think I'm gonna be lower later. Okay, let me block with it, and boom, they hit you with Snatch, and I have to block with two cards, or let's say you have your 5 card hand you have channel mount heroic right you're like I'm about to just put it on my opponent I will never be at a lower life total yeah it might be actually correct to early block with arcanite skullcap and get some value out of it while you can maybe not on, on tr- hit trigger and just do it for raw damage because you know that you're going to be the beat down on the following turns um, yeah and so that's a little bit of a ramble those are my opinions arcanite skullcap and also about this phenomenon where people just randomly block with their freaking armor which is ap- actually happening a lot less I remember walking around Proto and yeah. Number one, at the high tables and seeing armor that wasn't blocked with <laughs> early in the game. Because that is the, that is just one of the craziest things I think you can do. Like you have this ability, like this permanent card on the table that you can utilize to stop on-hit triggers that will drastically increase your opponent's damage and their ability to maybe even reduce your damage. It's, it's so important to be cognizant of when and where to block with that armor.
1: I know you're passionate about it, so I had to, had to hand it to you on that one and <laughs> segue you in perfectly and let you go. The 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 thing you said about all damage isn't equal, you know, not all damage is equal is so, so true. And that's that's why equipment is so important. And that's where you get the advantage with your equipment. It's, yes, my equipment, the printed value is two. It's one, it's two, whatever. It's temper, it's blade break. But actually, you know, you can often make that equipment worth more than that. You know, like you said before, If I have no equipment, I have to block with two cards on a snatch and all my opponents getting, you know, significantly more value than just the one damage that's leaking through. If I just block with a three block, yeah. But if I block with my piece of equipment, you know, say my eighth iron weave and a card from hand or my tunic and a card from hand um, or my, you know, iron rock boots, whatever it is, plus my card in hand, I've gotten, you know, effectively one plus the on-hit effect of value out of that defensive piece of equipment and that that's massive that's huge so i i did want to you know kind of piggyback on what you just said and kind of point that out because that's the importance of equipment that's what you know finding the right spots to with your equipment is going to make your equipment worth more than the damage printed on it. and you know this kind of idea of like oh get the value out of skull cap uh i'm not gonna be lower than my opponent for the rest of the game aren't you just winning those games probably then like the only situation where it becomes relevant is then you go to like you know, you become one and one on life, and you can't use the scale cap. But yeah. if you're using your scale cap at one, just for pure damage, you know, just for not an on-hit effect, just to stop pure damage, and then you think you're never going to blow be your opponent, it's probably not relevant. Do you know what yeah. I mean? It's probably not relevant. The, so yeah.
0: Um, so the only times that I really see that play out and where it's relevant is like if it's a Briar mirror right? And you, like you're like, okay, I have Chain of Man Heroic. I'm about to put it on my opponent, right? But somehow they survive, right? And your Chain of Man Heroic goes away, and now they come back with their own, and maybe they become the beatdown. I think this like transitioning of roles is actually uh with those kind of decks it's a little bit more rare usually you keep the tempo you keep the momentum you you stay the beat down throughout the game but like sometimes those room play mashups yeah it can come down to like trying to sneak out of value but i find people that liberally block with their uh, their organized skull cap for raw damage probably lose more games than people that don't
1: especially when it's on zero counters when is that first first yeah, block with it i think that's that's often uh it's crazy you know yeah, so equipment use, very important. You know, Brendan gave a great example of Quell. We talked about sort of physical uh, equipment use. Uh, I mean, there's, there's other things as well, but basically the the kind of like long and short of it is like, what is the value of your equipment? So uh, if you're pitching a blue three block to Quell, you know, you're not gaining any value on that, right? Like you said before, you use the muck for example. Uh, if you're using your piece of iron rod boots, just a block, vanilla damage, you're not gaining advantage on that, um, you know, and you shouldn't be doing that really unless you need to because you're about to die or something we haven't talked about you go to a threshold yeah. where it's going to be so you know you're playing it's a rosetta thorn deck you're on uh two life you need to use your piece of equipment on vanilla damage to not go to one so that you just immediately die to the rosetta thorn for instance right you know maybe you've, you've also got rune. so mm. there's all these these sorts of things but um yeah try and get the most out of your equipment in terms of the value and try and make the printed value on your equipment um you know get more than the printed value in equipment rather that's what your aim should be when uh, thinking about your equipment from the defensive side so I want to talk about next thing, Brendan, is this idea of opposition turn mapping, which is something we talked a little bit about actually in the kind of cookout question. You know, it's not just about why I want to go first or second, it's why does my opponent want to go first or second? What does the matchup look like? And this is kind of the same thing with this idea when we think about the defensive side of the game and opposition turn mapping, which is uh, literally what what is likely to happen for the rest of the turn. So we are sat there, five cards versus five cards, right? I've got four in hand, I've got a card in arsenal, Brendan, you've got four cards and a card in arsenal. And you play out your first card. It's a red brand with claw. Now, the first thing that I should be doing before I even decide what I want to defend with, if I do want to defend with anything, is work out what I think is likely to happen for the rest of your turn. That's really important because that's going to allow us to decide how and where we should defend, if we should defend, and what it looks like. So, yeah. you know, you play out your red brand with Cinderclaw. Uh, you have three cards left to hand in hand the card in Arsenal. I'm reasonably going to assume that, you know, you have a blue, you can come in with your uh, Ember Blade, you've probably got two more attacks plus that in your hand uh, to come in with, and then a Phoenix Flame is going to come in, and maybe you have something like a Love Burst at the end, right? That's just baseline what I'm thinking. Okay, you have a Mask Momentum in play, uh, I'm probably going to need to block with at least two things. I'm going to have to block on two attacks here to stop this, and then we start to go to work on that. This idea of opposition turn mapping can be quite daunting, I think, because it can take time to think through this. So just if we just talk through that line, we could have sat here for like, you know, 2 or 3 minutes and talk through Brendan's potential lines. And then all of a sudden Brendan does something else and completely throws the, this idea we had out the window, you know. He goes, "Actually, you know what? I don't I don't have blue I've just got all attacks, or actually I've got two blues and um I'm actually attacking with this red flying kick." I don't know. You know, it could be something completely different to what we think, right? So um but what this allows us to at least do is just kind of have like this quick kind of thought process of, "Well, I think Brendan's got at least four more attacks here." uh when do i want to block and how do i want to block uh this is vanilla damage i'm more about on hit effects that could come later say like a snatch at the end of the chain uh i'm gonna gonna keep cards in hand for that because i know with my hand i only want to block with max one card because as soon as i take a second card out of my hand my hand falls apart it doesn't function i could do 15 with four cards or 16 with four cards but if i only have the two cards in hand plus a card in arsenal i can only do eight damage for instance so that's kind of how that works, and then I'm gonna start mapping out what my opponent could do. Have you? Uh, I'm Yes. You know, I think this is something that we all do, Brendan. Like you, you do. But I think it's a it's a concept that maybe we don't talk much about.
0: So I think that most people, hmm, as they say, everybody does this, right? You think about what can my opponent potentially? Yeah. What can my opponent potentially hit me with? So there, I think when this gets more interesting is when you get to a point in the game where you're like, you potentially know how you win the game, and now you have to start evaluating. How do I lose this game? Or what is the worst case scenario? What actually could come at the end of this combat chain? So you mentioned the snatch, right? But I can think it's back to Uprising Limited. And there's a very popular card that can come at the end of that combat chain. Let's say you're about to win. You have a five card hand, you need that fifth card to win the game. And the last, you know, the second to last card is coming in, it maybe it's coming in for three, and you have one more card in hand, one resource floating. What is it? It's a breaking point. It's like boom, you're dead, right? It's like I lose I was I thinking lots up, but nah, yeah. on it, no, but it can be like breaking point. I can lose my my fifth card and now it's a huge swing, right? So so I have this card that blocks for three. I know I only need a three-card hand to win or something like that, right? Like a three-card hand plus my arsenal. And I, I plan to block with this card, but when am I going to do it, right? When on the chain, when is the most effective? It's like it's a clean block on the blade, but there could be a breaking point i laid it on the chain, right? There could be a breaking point that I need to block and then maybe, you know, I'll throw some armor in front of it if I had armor that blocked <laughs> in, in Uprising. But you know what I'm saying, right? Um, so it's really easy to clean block the blade when you have no information. I think it's always better to block when more information is given rather than less. But sometimes, you know, you don't have a choice, right? Because you don't, the last thing you want to do is be going into your turn now, having not blocked at that card with redundant cards in hand that don't really do anything to help to help your turn. Um, so yeah, it's very dynamic. This is this is effectively the game of flesh and blood is like, what is my opponent going to do? What could they have? And how do I maximize my turn because of this? But um, yep. yeah.
1: Yeah, like my example before, right? What if the last card is in fact just a Phoenix Flame for one? Mm-hmm you know, and now you're set at this card being like, well, I'm about to lose two points of value here because I'm going to block this because my card literally does nothing. Or I'm going to lose three and keep the card in my hand for no value. You know, it's not, you know, say you already had an arsenal set up or something. So it's, um, it's not easy, but yeah, I think you're right. Like it is the crux of what fish and blood is, but I think we kind of forget this idea when it comes to, I think we think about it from an offensive standpoint a lot. These are the things that I know I can do. And we think about, oh, what does my opponent do offensively here? But then the consequence of that is like, what does that mean for our defense? And the, I think the more you keep in mind these cards, like breaking point, uh, you know, I can think in Welcome to Wraith Limited, like open the center, right? You know, so many times <laughs> that I die, to do open the center, uh, because it's like, well, oh, well now I'm on three and I should have just blocked this card earlier. Cause I plan to block two cards in this turn anyway, you know, like understanding what you probably want to defend with, how you want to defend in a turn and what points on the chain you should defend with is like really important. And it's a lot easier when they come in with a, a tall attack. Like, okay. I pitch a blue or two blues and I come in with, um, this spinal crush right like pitch two blues come a spinal crush that's a lot easier to see what's happening it's a lot easier to evaluate this it's way harder when your opponent pitches a blue comes in with their kadachi for one and they still have four cards in hand you know or three cards in hand like what what is the next thing they're going to do that is a lot harder to evaluate so and i think that's why those decks in general feel harder to defend um and people just go default i'll just block the third attack and stop the mask momentum or whatever it is mm-hmm. so um this kind of idea of like opposition like turn mapping at least gives you a somewhat of an idea and you don't have to like know it down to the card and once they play their first card or the second card you don't then have to stop and go oh, i have to reevaluate everything at least just having in mind first of all like an idea of what you think they're going to do across the turn and then what that means for your hand because you can pretty quickly and clearly go oh yeah i just have this redundant card like you just hit in, but like this card is going to be used to defend either way let's find the best possible place on the chain to defend with it uh and sometimes that's earlier because you don't want to lose value on it And sometimes it's later because you're more worried about the on-hit effect. And that's going to change as the game goes through, you know. The value of the on-hit effect can change different points of the game. Like that breaking point might mean nothing early in the game. You know, like, oh, we're not in this kind of weird um, spot where life total um, thresholds are important. And if they do attack with that last, I'll just throw two cards. You know, like it's not as important. I can afford to lose a little bit of efficiency. But later in the game where if you lose efficiency, that's probably enough for your opponent to swing the tempo back and just kill you on the falling turn. That that's that's really big. So um yeah, I think it's a it's a it's a concept. I mean, one that comes to mind right when it comes to like this idea of like turn mapping and understanding what your opponent wants to do is like what do you play around is like the next thing. So you talked about do okay. I think my opponent has a breaking point? The yeah. classic is, Seems does bad. my opponent have the pummel for the CNC?
0: Or just the CNC in general, right? CNC at the end of the sure, combat sure. chain as you've tried to tank damage. Very common in, uh, I guess less so now, but used to be very common in Runeblade Mirrors, right? It's like just that cheeky CNC at the end. You're like, oh God, because you had a plunder on your arsenal or an Art mm-hmm. of War. And like now you're committed to just like basically uh, <laughs> effectively passing on your next turn. It sucks. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's um, it's something that you've got to to think about the whole time. And that's the funny thing is, like, the first time it happens, it's like, well, now I'm thinking about CNC out of my Runeblade opponent for the next forever. How many games I play because it's something that's happened to me. And that can also like inversely and negatively affect you, right? Where you go, now you just start holding cards, and then my opponent, your opponent, just goes like, oh, I just you know come in with the blade, and you're like, oh, what? <laughs> you know, so there is there is considerations like playing around cards. Often it's it's just incorrect to play around cards. I think it really depends. Um, so like people try and play around pummel a lot. I think that's oh, often yeah. just kind uh, of incorrect. I think pummel's
0: <laughs> an outlier though. I like I, I think like I agree with you, but I I think playing around CNC can can be correct, right? Especially when it comes to like how you yeah, buckle but... the armor. But playing around pummel, that is a funny one because the way the pummel works is like you play around pummel, they just arsenal the pummel, and it's coming next that's time. Like it's coming next turn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: Same with the razor reflex. Like yep. attack actions, uh, sorry, attack reactions are harder to play around, right? Than just kind of defending a bit better so that you can stop on hit effects and that's where equipment comes in like that's the power of equipment right Mm. it's like the longer you have those pieces of equipment the harder it is for your opponent to push on hit effects and the harder it is for actually them to sequence their turn well uh, knowing that they can push something or take two cards from your hand because the longer you have the equipment the longer you can stop your opponent from being able to take multiple cards from your hand because you always have the threat of your equipment being used so um yeah important Uh, i want to come back to that thing you talked about earlier Brendan. (laughs) um we we were talking about uh i guess this idea of of the you know you draw two blues in your fire deck um and you use one to quell right because it it makes up damage but Mm -hmm. what i wanted to talk about is just identifying when uh it's the correct call to actually give up some tempo so you know tempo is this kind of elusive thing that we talk about and people say that you know if you in certain formats if you keep the tempo you you never give it up you just win the game right like you just always keep on the the front foot effectively maybe we can replace that with tempo you stay on the offensive you're the one dictating the flow of the game you know you're pitching your blue coming with three attacks you know pushing damage your opponent's forced to defend sometimes you know it feels bad to uh stop that so you start playing inefficiencies you know you rather than block with one of those two blue cards you just had Brennan you attack with one of those you attack with your blue rising resentment or your blue uh dust runner outlaw whatever it is and actually that's kind of you know can be negative damage you've paid one resource to come in for for two damage which can often be not good and I wanted to talk about this idea on defense sometimes uh sometimes it's correct to switch gears and defend for a turn take mm-hmm. take you know give your opponent some tempo willingly because it allows you to actually be more efficient with your your hands overall and more efficient with your game plan. Now this isn't always gonna be correct. Sometimes you need to keep the pressure on because life totals are starting to be low and if you let up, your opponent might be able to swing the game. But especially like early mid game, I think this is something that people don't do enough and it actually causes them to miss out on damage. So rather than defend with their blue for three, I think it's a better example, um, or paying one resource to come in for a blue with two, the, sorry, they'll pay their uh, one resource to come in with a blue for two offense. And you're just, you know, you're not, they're not putting pressure on. It's not something that really hurts your opponent. They can afford to take this. They can find a gap to just take the damage and swing the tempo anyway. So often you're better served just using those cards defensively anyway, stopping something from your opponent, stopping them from, you know, like triggering a rising resentment or a uh, a yellow mount with, you know, mounting anger, whatever it is. Like often you can use your cards a bit smarter, I think that way. And what you're actually also doing is you're saving yourself some life, which we're going to talk about life threshold soon, but could be really important for where the game shakes out in the end. Sometimes giving up the sort of, or some tempo, if not all the tempo on a specific turn cycle can be the correct call.
0: My favorite example of, or sort of gameplay to understanding tempo in Flesh and Blood was actually the Lightning Briar Mirror background US Nationals when you could create multiple embodiments. Um, So... Yeah, I mean, a lot of that, a lot of that deck did revolve around plunder run, but it also revolved around a uh, balance of blocking and attacking because of embodiments, right? There was a, there was a punishment for not blocking, um, and your opponent would have enough embodiments to go ahead and block you. So sometimes you would find is your opponent like you would have multiple embodiments, your opponent would flip their red plunder run and maybe play the art of war at the same time, and you have a bunch of embodiments because you have been the beatdown. Your opponent is not blocking, you are doing damage, right? But you go, okay, I recognize this. This is my opponent's sort of pivot turn, right? They've played, their pl- they've played the Red Plunder on. They've played their Art of War. This is where they're going to try and flip the game. Well, it happens that I have multiple three blocks, which are now six blocks in my hand, and a couple two blocks, which are now five blocks, and I might just block out their entire turn, right? And I felt like that, bri- that Lightning Bryomir was a real delicate balance between tempo and actually allowed you to have huge edge against your opponent. Um, but yeah, just a little anecdote yeah. there. <laughs>
1: I don't remember Art of War being in those decks, but um, not Art of War. I, I but you mean, know what I get.
0: I mean, just something <laughs> on top of the Plunder run with that yeah, overkillism yeah, or
1: something, whatever it is. Comes, yeah. yeah, yeah. The the other thing as well that like giving up this tempo sometimes is you play this game where so when you're on the offense and this is the this is the underrated side of defense. I think is when you are the <laughs> the offender, when you're the offensive player coming in turn after turn. Uh, you can brick which we just talked about right mm-hmm. and sometimes that's the time where you want to use your hand defensively but the other thing as well is you actually improve the efficiency of your opponent's hand a good like the best players in the world the good you know good players will be able to understand how to efficiently use their four or five card hand for the best on offense and defense and when you weirdly as it sounds but when you are coming in and you're the defensive player a lot of the time you're giving your opponent the best options the options to defend the way they want to and attack the way they want to and although that's like, it's not always a negative because you're leaking damage, you're pushing, you know, you can always just be going over the top potentially. But in some instances, you know, like that can kind of add up. Your opponent gets some efficiencies on defense. Actually, they have ways they can start to turn the game. Okay, I'm going to block with three cards here and then I'm going to come in with snatch while I have an empty arsenal. You know, your opponent can do that. Whereas if they have, uh, maybe you take a turn off, you 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 break the tempo, you give them some back because you've had a bad hand, you're going to block with it rather than just trying to still brute force it through. Your opponent looks at the hand and goes, I actually can't use this four card hand in the way I want to, I I can still get, you know, say nine damage out of this offensively, but defensively, I could have got 12 damage out of this hand by attacking with two cards and defending with two cards. And so this this idea, I think that like always being the offense, always being the aggressor actually has its downsides. I think it's important that we kind of remember that like the the defensive side can have real big benefits. And when it comes to the like use of your hand. So Sometimes, like I say, breaking that tempo and giving it to your opponent's foot, the efficiency of your hand can actually also hurt your opponent, which I think is something to, to remember.
0: Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um,
1: what we'll about this one, Brendan? Uh, life thresholds, don't have to spend much time on it, but I think it's really important that, you know, if you want to get better at the defensive side of the game, understanding uh, what life thresholds are, what life thresholds are important. So, you know, a good example we used before is like uh, Residethorn, right? What is that important? But even to the point, you know, uh, Kano and Blitz, what's your life threshold with Kano and Blitz? How much should I be defending to stay above that? Because sometimes defending, say it's a, you're playing against the old style Kano with forked, right? What was the, you want to be above 13, right? Above 11 so, right, at so AB3. AB3, you want to be above 11. So you want to be on 12. So going to, from 13 to 12, Not as much of a big deal, right? But going from 12 to 11, massive deal. (laughs) You're dead. (laughs) Could be dead. So, you know, in the case of going from 13 to 12, yeah, it might not be worth giving up a card for. But going from 12 to 11, yeah, it's worth giving up a card for because you probably just die if you don't, right? Like that's a a really like simplified example. But that's literally what the understanding of life thresholds can mean is that, you know, uh, literally a Bravo. Bravo is a great example of this current meta. You have no equipment left. uh, You go to a life threshold where your opponent can dominate and attack and kill you that's super, super relevant. Like life thresholds uh, are really important and they can be important like at that point in the game when you're sort of really low on life and it's about the game sort of ending, but they can also equally be as important at like high life totals. So, you know, turning off your opponent's Arcanite Skull Cap, turning off your opponent's um, mm-hmm. Scarf a Scout, scar. like these life thresholds can also be really important uh, or, you know, you get your opponent to uh, below 20 and this means that now you can, uh, you know, set up your quad intimidate, Reinar turn or vice versa. Like the, these life thresholds aren't just about the sort of the the last two or three points of damage they can be at different things for different matchups and i think it's important to understand firstly what life threshold you want to get your opponent to, to to be at your best um this can even be important and limited right i think in the fire mirror like around that seven point life total it can be really important to, to get to first because it means that you can present lethal probably through two blocks on the way back um and then also what your opponent's trying to do what life total do they want to get you at
0: Mm-hmm. turning off your opponent's skull cap. okay another anecdote i guess i'm any anecdote this uh this podcast but and a little lesson of fab history so Tarek patel at u.s nationals won every single game in his top eight by going to one and killing his opponent by turning off their skull cap. makes the arcane damage unblockable if they if don't the arcane, have yes. arcane barrier it was a very popular strategy um for winning those uh those mirrors back in the day but he he won I think I don't think he only played I He played Chain as well. He played Michael Fang in the finals. Every single game he won that way. You can go back and watch it. Uh, so yeah, I mean, there's like an uh, turning off Skullcat, I feel like that's like a slightly atypical way of understanding this concept, which it's like I will go low enough that my opponent um cannot do anything now against arcane damage. Now I can present them three damage, three arcane damage, right? A rune chant and my Rosetta Thorn, and they can't do anything about it. They're just dead. Um, it's one of my one of my favorites kind of one of my favorite concepts uh around this this topic is um Terra patel using that in all three games every all three games mm-hmm. to ultimately take that um take that trophy
1: a lot of us use it that weekend i know uh, you had a couple of wins i think i had one or two wins that way as well over the weekend in the mirror like it, it was it was really really relevant i was surprised that you know it wasn't it didn't come up more um yeah life threshold sure is really important uh I want to give a bit of a balance to what we've just talked about. We've talked a lot about defensive efficiencies and focusing more on the defensive side of the game, but, uh, you've got to think about how your game plan is affected as well. Uh, So at the end of the day, if you're only focusing on what your opponent's doing and trying to get defensive efficiencies, um, you might just lose the game because you end up playing the game that they want to play. So I talked about before, you know, sometimes breaking tempo is great and, you know, you can get the benefits out of it. But if, you know, you're always thinking about, okay, what's my best efficient hand here? And you're just defending efficiently and attacking efficiently. you, uh, You, you might just lose the game. At some point, you probably need to swing the your tempo with your five card hand you know yep. when is it right to maybe take a bit more damage than even you could deal because of where you're at in the in the game so you need to also play your game uh, i think if you're focusing defensively often it can be about what's your opponent trying to do this i think you see this with like fatigue dicks right and yeah, like, controls, like you know, controlling right? dicks yep most yeah. efficient
0: way would be like if you look at your four cards like how efficiently can i play this out play my four card hand play my four card hand and next thing you know you've done zero damage right because a lot of times you're yep. going to need a five card hand to leak damage against something like old him because of crown of seeds and their ability um you know their armor and just their inherently defensive ability in the cards that they play in that deck um so yeah i mean if we looked at it just raw efficiency raw efficiency would say yeah I'll just play all the four card hand every turn but that's absolutely not correct if you want to try to win that match It's also yeah. deck stacking right pitching relevant cards back to the bottom of the deck um, maybe in a specific order so that you can't overcome something like fatigue
1: Well, even even on the fatigue side of it right as well so say i'm the ultimate player if i'm just continually using my four or five cards to defend my opponent every single turn there's no pressure on them they can take infinite time to set up what they want so how can i start to introduce say my my frost hammer my winter's whale into Mm -hmm. the game to put pressure on them and so, you know like sometimes it's going to be worth taking a damage or two damage to come with the the you know the winter's whale on the way back which presents a threat presents an an effect starts to pressure them so uh you know you can't just continue to play your opponent's game the whole time you do have to play your own game and i do think that's a balance to the defensive side yeah um last one brendan my favorite one here is uh just learning when to, to just lick the stamp and send it you know mm-hmm. sometimes you uh you have to accept that you can't play around things that you can't defend in the way that you maybe want to and sometimes you just have to hope that, you know, your opponent's hand isn't as good as as, as you think it might be. Uh, you need to let go of some efficiencies to swing some tempo, take some damage, and um, and just do it. Just attack. Just try and win the game. You can't just defend out for the entire game.
0: Like the stamp of Sunday. It's a phrase I haven't heard. Uh, <laughs> I mean, probably no size to you. I a, One of my biggest hobbies is a small child was licking stamps.
1: Um. It actually comes from, I stole this quote from... Uh, well, an Australian athlete by the name of Daniel Ricardo. if anyone's a, a 41. He's a, he's a big lick the stamp and send it person. So um,
0: Sounds like an go. Australian thing to say, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> it
1: does, isn't it, right? Um, all right, lastly, Brennan, want to go through just a couple of things of how to improve your defensive game. We talked about all these kind of concepts to focus on, but um, how do you actually gain these extra points? Like, where, where do you start? Where do you go from here? So, uh, firstly, the fundamentals and the key considerations are where you should start, but not with all of them pick a couple of these, pick a couple of things, you know, like um, we talked about the idea of term mapping, focus on your use of equipment, uh, focus on just doing the math, like these are good places to start, pick one or two if you're not already doing them, or if you are doing them, right, like you're seasoned fish and blood player, you know, you feel like you're pretty good at defense, but maybe it's starting to slip a little bit with the way the format's gone, just, you know, maybe in testing, maybe when you're playing your, your local events, just start to focus on one or two things and see if you can, you know, improve the efficiencies there, I know that's something that that I'm personally thinking about as well. Um, Self-reflection, self I think, is important, right, Brennan? It's it's key to improving. So uh, maybe you feel like you're not missing damage. You know, like, no, nah, I don't leak damage. I, I never, like, lose damage here or there. Maybe once every few games. Why not just, like, ask a friend, ask a testing partner, like, do you think I'm, like, losing damage here? Look back at a turn. Like, have a turn and then, like, talk through it. Like, did I lose damage here? Like, should, had I did I have a better efficient turn here? Um, I think is a, is a good... idea. I know we did that a lot in the last format. We would, like flip hands as like these huh. Vistari decks when Scalata yeah. was wrapped and be like, what was the most efficient was, play here? Uh, that was and very complicated. Half an hour. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well when you first started, it was very complicated, right? To find the literal most effective, especially when you start considering variants with like snagging the Sonata a bit early or something like that. And also creeping in the Sonata when you don't have to to get a second action point to hedge against something that doesn't have Go again. It was really intense. Yeah. Um but you could actually sit there and just do all the lines. It's the glory of DTS. Um so, yeah, yeah. probably don't have to go down that that yeah. that that rabbit hole.
1: But you know there's oh, even in a game, limited i often find it's like well actually like you know there's this play here like could use the quell here on this way or or, or whatever um take some time you know when it comes to i don't want to say slow play definitely not like but you know on these defensive turns especially if that's something that you're focusing on trying to improve on uh take a bit more time like realistically all your thinking should be done during your opponent's turn anyway because whatever you decide to do on defense is you've decided what you're doing on offense already because you've decided what you're doing with your hand so uh, take the time make the decisions um, if you're thinking on your opponent's turn and your turn that's probably something to look at anyway you know you're all you basically 90% of what's happening in your thought process maybe 80% depending on the deck you're playing should be during your opponent's turn anyway um, it should be pretty mapped out so you know take some time if you need to focus on those things um, but obviously also be aware of you know not, not slow playing um play decks that focus on the defensive side uh, or a deck that needs to defend to gain some advantage of turns so guardians brutes warriors i think are good examples of this uh, they have a lot of three blocks often they will take turn cycles off they need to gain some advantage uh with their hand or set something up so um you know they will defend with some or all of their hand in some certain situations and turns i think there's a good decks to, to to jump on for practicing this sort of thing um any other any other decks in your sort of frame of mind
0: Brendan um no i just give a non-future proof statement and say that in uh, you know if you're going to the pro tour if you're playing some of these big events coming up especially the limited try to outqual your opponent <laughs> try to turn some of those block twos yep. and block threes especially in the redundant and I think you'll win a lot more games especially in five mirrors they're very it's very mm-hmm. very important
1: cool good cool. um understand that defending is a variable in the matchup it won't always be crucial but those ones and twos do add up that's something I talked about before and uh, can really result in a win or a loss in a lot of cases. And and um, just just start to work out, you know, like if you save one or two damage, it, it is going to make a difference. I think having that mindset and that mind frame is, is really going to help. Uh, every deck will have to defend over the course of eight rounds. No one is immune. Even if you're playing an aggro deck, you're going to break a hand. You're going to need to defend at some point. Every deck needs to defend at some point in their lifetime. So work out the best way to defend when you do need to defend, even if you're playing a deck that doesn't need to defend very often.
0: Know we've got some combo five players that are a bit suspicious on that statement but <laughs> <laughs> luckily <laughs> luckily they don't exist anymore um all right so we do have a google review this week sir but before i go into it hayden why don't you tell people if you want to get your review read out on arsenal pass hear my voice say your words how do they do it
1: mm. They're all showing off right about now. No, 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 kidding. Uh, first of all, do just want to say, uh, really enjoyed that sort of main topic, Brendan, talking about the defensive side of the game a bit more. I uh, would love to get people's feedback on whether they find this helpful. Are these kind of things helpful that we focus on the pod? It's something that we did a lot back in the day, these kind of uh, real fundamental focuses. And sometimes, you know, we focus just more on the meta and what's happening. So we'd love to get your thoughts down in the YouTube comments of what you thought about this pod. If you do want to get your Google, Google review in and have Brendan read it out with that smooth, silky voice, your words, his mouth, uh, rate this com forward slash Arsenal Pass and uh, it'll take you to your preferred platform uh, once you click on it and you can leave a review. Reviews really help us out. You know, they get us uh, on these charts. They get uh, visibility to Arsenal Pass for other potential Flesh and Blood players or just, you know, players who aren't playing Flesh and Blood but maybe want to get into the game to find us and hear our voices. Plus, of course, you know, we love a, a nice five star review and a, a cheeky few comments. So, Brendan, what have we got this week? I can see the, the, who the author is and I can't wait.
0: Yeah. I love that my uh, like rough, smoky, just degenerate voice is smooth and silky to you. That does make me feel good. So, for it coming out, uh, we have some off uh, the title is Awesome Coverage of Everything, Flesh and Blood, and the author is badgersaurus i think i might know who this is is this uh is this the is this the man behind the cognition nose deck because i've heard that thing is uh you know, i'm scared of it in pt let's say that it says arsenal pass is not just the best fab podcast is not only the best fab podcast not only the greatest online media production of all time but it represents the high tide of human civilization and is certain to never be overtaken by any other endeavor It is nice to hear two experts, one with a funny American accent and one with a normal voice, Hmm. (laughs) talk about everything there is to know about Fab TCG. And they even like Reinar. Full of robust discussion, healthy disagreement, and unhealthy die roll imbalances. Arsenal Pass is a must-listen for the whole family, provided you live alone. My only scathing critique is that it should be called "pass Arsenal" because you pass priority in the main phase and then Arsenal in the end step. So I wouldn't be surprised if there is a lot of rules confusion about around this due to the irresponsible representation of the rules via the title <laughs> of the podcast. That is true. People are actually—you know—that's a funny. That's a funny thing because people actually do get confused because it's not because of the podcast, but Arsenal pass is just a very popular thing to say in flush and blood, but it is absolutely incorrect. <laughs> you do pass and then Arsenal.
1: Very true. Well, thank you for the review, Badgersaurus, and uh, we can only speculate on who it might be. Anyway, Brendan, as I say, if you're doing get your review and get them in, uh, if you're doing get your questions in for the Commander Cookout, get them in as well. Uh, we're always looking for nice, and juicy questions and things to dive into. Or if you have any suggestions for topics we should cover on the podcast, drop them below in the in the YouTube comments and, and let us know. Anyway, that's it for this week. Uh, just last few things. If you do want to jump into Flesh and Blood Twitter, uh, follow myself and Brendan on Twitter. We're both there at BrendanAPG and at Fian_Dale. underscore Dale. You'll find us. Uh, big shout out to all of our patrons again. And uh, we will have our Patreon pod coming sometime this month, I think before the PT. If you're going to be at The Calling in Singapore, come and say hello. And if you're going to be in uh, Lille, come and also say hello to us. Uh, excited to play. A busy few weeks of, of flesh and blood, uh, but I love traveling for these events. I know you do too, Brendan. It's uh, it's very exciting. So we'll, we'll see some of you soon. And uh, for the rest of you, we'll see you next week.